a little person on this great big earth and you start to feel like everything is too big for you, the world is too big for you, it's too hard, whatever, just imagine that you're just walking through or moving through a world where what is sort of your size is what's right in front of you, what you can manage. And if you can manage a few steps, if you can manage to just reach out and touch something close by, if you can breathe air, if you can feel sunlight and warmth or cold, then you acknowledge that you are alive and capable. Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I speak with changemakers from all over the world who are contributing to the common good. Contributing to the common good in even the smallest of ways is proven to help us age with vitality and deep contentment. I'm your host, Nicole Christina, psychotherapist and fellow Zestful Ager. My goal is to share optimism about aging and introduce you to guests who will inspire you to live with zest. And to find out more about the podcast, which just won an Anthem Award, hop on over to ZestfulAging.com. And while you're there, sign up for my weekly email newsletter, The Insider, where you will get behind-the-scenes looks at our guests and other fun tidbits. And if you love the podcast, I'd be grateful if you shared it with your friends. Our music is courtesy of Judy Banker, a previous guest on Zestful Aging. Find out more at judybanker.com. And our technical director is Stephen Litweiler. Well, sometimes I find guests in the most remarkable places. My tennis friend, Kim Wally, introduced me to our guest because I was looking for a place to live in the sweet town of Casanova, New York, and Laura was renting an unusually beautiful cottage there. Once we started talking, though, I, I knew I had to have her on the show, and after you listen, you'll understand why. Dr. Laura Reeder is an artist, a teacher, and a human who encourages young people and adults to use creativity as a form of activism to make meaningful change in the world. Her recent installation at the Everson Museum of Art, titled Now More Than Ever, reshaped a gallery with thousands of cell phone photos taken from her walks through everyday life. Her miles-long cultivators, labyrinths that she creates by walking in snow, sand, and leaves, invite us to pay closer attention to the natural environment. Welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you so much, Nicole. It's a pleasure to be here. I am really excited for our conversation because Oh, I, I just so fascinated with your work. Um, and the, the natural environment is a very prominent theme in your work. And I'm wondering how you came to appreciate it. What, what was the evolution of your love for the natural environment? Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think ever since I was a child, I've found that by going outside and digging up a little piece of earth, something comes back to me. And I think as a kid, I obviously never really knew why. But as I became an adult and I started to realize that I actually um, struggled with a little bit of depression, I, I was an artist, so I was sort of, I attributed my depression or my moods to being a creative person. I sort of wrote that off as the way it is. 
I started to realize that if I was struggling, uh, not just with depression, but just, you know, challenged anxiety, life was hard. If I just took a walk um, outdoors, Mm. something changed, something untangled in my head, in my body, my heartbeat. Um, I felt alive. I felt like I could manage things. And so again, no scientific reasoning to all of that, except that it felt right. But then as I became an adult and chose to be a teacher, I decided to become an art teacher because that's what you do when you're an artistic person and you want to make money. (laughs) (laughs) Not not get rich, just make a living. (laughs) Um, I started to realize also that working with young people, working with children, working with kids in um, cities and in rural environments especially, that when I had kids in my classrooms who were also anxious, struggling, challenged, depressed, whatever, all I had to do was plan an activity where we went outside, even if it was just drawing on sidewalks. Something Mm. would happen. Bodies and minds would um, become more manageable for the individual and for groups. Mm. And I think it... As an adult, I've discovered that a lot of it has to do with this idea that Rebecca Solnit, who's an amazing author um, who wrote Wanderlust, A History of Walking, she wrote that walking is how the body measures itself against the earth. So if you're a little person on this great big earth and you start to feel like everything is too big for you, the world is too big for you, it's too hard, whatever, Just imagine that you're just walking through or moving through a world where what is sort of your size is what's right in front of you, what you can manage. And if you can manage a few steps, if you can manage to just reach out and touch something close by, if you can breathe air, if you can feel sunlight and warmth or cold, then you acknowledge that you are alive and capable. And so by sort of embracing that non-theory theory as an artist and as a teacher, I found that it led me to being outdoors so much more as an artist. It made me not want to be in a studio using plastic paints, using materials that were toxic. It made me want to be outside. And as an artist, I thought, well, what can I do outside as an artist that's not... um, going to hurt the world that I love so much, the earth that I love so much. So about six years ago, I intentionally turned my walking practice, because this walking became just a, a lifelong habit, I turned it into scratching sort of my foot footprints or dragging a stick on sand. And I started to create pathways that reminded me of when I was a teacher and I had kids who were wild, struggling, I would challenge them to make mazes on on sidewalks with chalk for each other so that they could help each other to take pathways and contain that energy in a way that was open-ended, but also creative. And by doing it myself as an adult, I started to create labyrinths on beaches, mazes, so that my kids could run around in it or other people's children on beaches could do this. And these walking drawings mazes that I was creating, labyrinths that I was creating on beaches started to get bigger and bigger. (laughs) Uh, I I paid closer uh attention to the air quality, to coming and going of ocean waves, the time of the tides, how the sand is harder when it's cold out and softer yet dry when it's warm out. 
So much more of the world became available to me by walking my little body through it in a big place. Um, so that was the beginning of sort of my understanding. It took me 50 some years to get there. <laughs> As a psychotherapist of 30 years with a specialty in food and eating issues, I know that holidays can be a real challenge when it comes to eating and food. Food and family visits are often a very tricky combination. So if you'd like to learn how to have a more peaceful relationship with food, both during the holidays and the rest of the year, check out my web course, The Wisdom of Mindful Eating. This course is super practical and user-friendly, and it has the power to change your life. You'll find the course on the ZestfulAging.com website. Now back to the show. What's the experience like? I'm just trying to think because you are, I mean, to use a very overused word, you're totally in this mindful place, right. um, but you're also creating an organized design. I mean, it's not just some patchy mess that is chaotic. It, there are these scrolls and, you know, they're organized. What... How do you hold both at the same time, creating a design and also being aware of the air quality, the temperature, maybe your feet in the sand? Yeah. Well, so sort of hearkening back to that, that Solnit quote about our body measuring itself against the earth and thinking a little bit about Leonardo da Vinci, who wrote, who did that drawing of Vitruvian man, which is like a a drawing of a per of a man with his arms and legs outstretched inside of a, a perfect circle, right? Inside mm -hmm. of a square. Our bodies are machines. And so when I am out there walking and I'm, yeah, buffeted by wind or racing against the tide, which is going to come and eat up whatever it is that I'm drawing on the earth, or walking in snow and racing against wind, which is going to fill in my pathways, my body is only as big as it is my arms and my legs do create repetitive forms. So certain kinds of curves, certain kinds of lines start to be repeated and obvious to me. And, and your body might make different curves and lines or a smaller person than me or a larger person than me, somebody using wheels. We are machines and we start to create sort of universal movements. And so the arc of your arm when you're washing a, a countertop or washing a dish or something, it starts to follow the curve of the environment that it's in. So you might make small arcs when you're washing something in a sink, small hand movements. But if you're outdoors on a wide beach, you walk your body straight lines, curved lines. You start to have certain shapes that your body makes and when you do it over and over again, like, again, scrubbing a dish, but you're walking, those arcs, those curves start to repeat themselves and become your signature. So mm. even when you doodle, uh, doodling is sort of a similar thing, but you're doodling on a large scale with your body. So oh, keeping wow. that... That's a great. that's a great visual. Right? Keeping that balance between what your body can do, all that your body can do, and just what your body can do, right? Not... It's not always infinite, and yet it is. It doesn't feel infinite. Anyway, that's sort of the, the balance that happens. And then, you know, the earth tells you, hey, it's too windy today. 
And every step you take in the snow is going to be covered by, yeah, sort of the wind pushing snow back into your pathway. So as you walk, you're not going to see the pathway that you've created. It's going to become immediately covered up. So you might have a different repetition that you're doing. And the name cultivators. <laughs> yes. Talk about that. So as I was doing this earth scratching, mostly on beaches, again, this um, years ago, I lived in Boston. I was teaching and working at the Massachusetts College of Art and Design as a professor of art education. And I lived on the North Shore, which is um, sort of like European style beaches where they're big, flat, hard sand beaches where... The sand isn't sexy, right? It's uh, it's it's a little smelly. There's, you know, it's kind of mucky. And yet when you walk on it, your feet don't make as much of an imprint. I had to get a tool. Uh, I was using sticks that washed up that I found as I was sort of walking and scratching and sort of crafting these shapes. And I started to realize that as I was walking on a long, flat beach, walking back and forth in straight lines... If I wanted to make curved lines with my body, with the extent of my arms and my legs, I needed a tool and the sticks weren't doing it. I was getting back aches, my shoulders hurt. So I started to shop around in my um, gardener's shed, in my neighbor's gardener's sheds for cultivating tools, tools that mm. were made to scratch the earth, right? Mm -hmm. And literally, you know, I discovered so many tools. And of course, I became the recipient of many gifts, people <laughs> saying, try this, try that. <laughs> and so I started to realize that I was indeed cultivating. And cultivating, if you think about it, is to sort of to care for the earth. That's the old sort of Latin, I think, root or Greek root is to, cult to cultivate is to care for. So I started to realize that I was caring for the earth by scratching its surface and imagining creating something new, but also something that wasn't harmful. And then, of course, over time, by doing this cultivating on these big beaches, these are big urban beaches where people are walking by all the time. They're walking their dogs or at the time in northern on the North Shore, there were a lot of um, migrant refugee and immigrant people from Central America fleeing from really sort of some of the politics, obviously, of the Trump administration and what it was doing for folks who are feeling, fearing ICE, fearing mm -hmm. um, incarceration because of working here. And yet it was mm -hmm. also a community where people had, they wanted someone to clean their house. They wanted someone to do this cheap and they wanted to pay them under the table. So I, I encountered see. a lot of families walking on the beach because they felt they were safe there. They couldn't be identified um, there were a lot of other kinds of immigrants, Russian, um, Eastern European, Ukrainian uh, refugees, um, people from Asia. And as I started to talk with them, international stories of what the shapes I was making on the earth emerged. International stories of what the spiral shape meant to them. Mm -hmm. Stories of how the the pictures that they were seeing in my my drawings looked like earth looked like sky looked like an argument looked like a, a waterway people who brought their children down or walked walked down there themselves and walked in the labyrinths and actually walked the mile or two or three miles of my labyrinths these cultivators started to want to tell me what they thought about what made them feel good what was hard for them in the in the walk and so cultivating took on a new definition 
cultivating conversations, cultivating stories, cultivating ideas. And cultivating connection. Oh my goodness. It was really um, rich in those conversations. And so when I do sand cultivators, I do hope that I can do them on beaches that are not in some remote sort of romantic windswept place, but actually in a place where somebody might walk by and be having a, a lunch break from cleaning a house or be taking their kids to a safe place where they can play without feeling like they're going to be identified, um, you know, as, as uh, illegals, right, in, the, in their minds, having a place where people can actually start to imagine new worlds and new ideas. So when I do that, I tend to do it on these public beaches, not to get in anybody's way, but actually to cultivate safer spaces. Mm-hmm. You mentioned ICE yeah. and immigrants, and I know that you have done some advocacy around that. Yeah. So again, um, during my years in Boston, it was really uh, incredibly um, discouraging to see how people relied on the work of people that were fleeing difficult lives in Central America. And, you know, everybody wanted someone to, to clean their house and to work in their yard, but they didn't really want to know the story of why they were here. And they certainly struggled with how they were going to protect them when our federal administration shifted and started to hunt folks down for their immigration status. And so, yes, I have participated as an activist in walks, actually, with um, organizations, especially in Boston. There's some organizations that actually do walks where you walk from Boston up to New Hampshire over the course of many days and you sleep in churches or you sleep in community organization spaces and you walk, you take a um, pilgrimage from a city where someone is living to an incarceration or detention facility where they are taken to let folks understand what it might be like to have to cross a border, to walk a long distance to get to freedom and back again. And so walking to the incarceration spaces, the detention spaces, helped me to also find another community of walkers, people who saw walking as an art, as a way of expression, as a way of changing the world, and it helped me to better understand what it meant to walk for many miles to save my, someone's life. Lucky me, I could go at night into a warm space and have someone mm. give me some food. Mm-hmm. But what if I was bringing my four-year-old on a walk across a hot border and trying and being really chased by people with guns, people who are going to hurt me and my child? So we had we did this, and when we went to the detention facilities, we actually engaged in activism to protest the incarceration of folks who were parents, who were care providers, who were there simply for fleeing um, an unsafe environment. So yeah, walking became another art and another cultivator for me. Mm-hmm. Walking has been so important to you in so many different ways. It has. And so the idea of walking as something that I am able to do was something that I didn't, I took for granted for a long, long time. I, I'm not an athlete, but I'm, I like to be physical. 
And I used to think, well, you know, I'm not a good runner. I'm not a good skier. I'm not whatever. I'm not a, a team player. So I'll just walk, just walk. But then I started to realize that I am fortunate that I can walk. Oh, my goodness. I have a father right now who's suffering from heart failure. And walking across the room is a whole world for him right now. Mm -hmm. I had students who needed devices to aid in their mobility. And I never really, really understood the extent to which movement from one place to another was really a difficult activity and a challenging activity or an impossible activity, depending on what your body could do. And when I was in Boston, I did have to advocate for a colleague who was going to need some assistance with her, with their mobility. And I had to advocate against sort of state regulations for public spaces for making sure that just the act of moving of device with wheels in and out of a bathroom, up and down the hall of a public building was safe and practical for someone. So I started to realize that with my little body, I was privileged to be able to walk. And so walk I did and walk I will. I will walk until I can't. Mm -hmm. And if my walking can become art that expresses something and helps us to pay attention to the living world, the world that we share, or to even heal something, Mm -hmm. then I'll do it. <laughs> mm -hmm. How has being a caregiver affected your art? Uh, yeah. So I have been a caregiver at many times in my life for my children, for beloved, beloved friends who are dying of cancer, um, which is, you know, truly unfair. For elders, my husband's father and aunt, watching them, sort of helping them to navigate systems as they aged and had illnesses that were hard. And now caring for my dad, who has suddenly had an acute change in his life with an onset of acute heart failure. And, and becoming a caregiver makes you so alert to what you can do. So lucky me. I kind of wake up every day and say, well, I am fortunate. I can um, run from one room to another to fetch a you know, glass of juice or a hearing aid or something. Mm -hmm. But I also understand the complexity. What if I wasn't privileged enough to have a flexible work schedule and to work from mm -hmm. home? What if I didn't speak the language to navigate Medicare and what I'm allowed to have or wh what medical services are available to my father. What if I didn't know how to ask the right questions about the medicines, the, the polypharmacy um, that are required for somebody with heart failure? You know, he takes, again, all people with sort of advanced illnesses take so many medicines that the complexity of managing them is really impossible. Mm -hmm. So I guess and I read some of them have cognitive decline. Well, they so don't. how are you, you know, how are you going to figure this out? It's uh, different times, different amounts. Yeah, no, it's really, it's really, again, my, so caregiving heightens my awareness of what I can do and what I will do. Um, caregiving also heightens my awareness of 
things that I I kind of miss. So because I am now a caregiver, uh, again, a, a new, a different phase of caregiving in my life, which I share with an awesome team of sisters and an awesome husband and an awesome family. Like we are beyond fortunate to have a whole team of folks who gathered around my dad to make sure that we're helping each other. But you know, I also am aware that I'm not walking as much, right? So I'm sneaking out for a walk here, sneaking out for a walk there, mm-hmm. asking permission to t- to get away a little bit. You start to understand that the privilege that you, again, assume you have when your body can do these these heroic things, walking for miles, you realize that that's a privilege. I can do this, but I also have responsibilities that might not allow me to do this pretty thing where I can walk and make pretty pictures in the snow. So what's the point of it? You know, I think that's the other question that emerges for me sometimes. As an artist, you know, can I really heal anything by walking spirals in the snow? Like, uh, what's the point of it? Uh-huh. And and so when I ask that question, that's when I think about folks like, you know, Robin Wall Kimmerer, Mm-hmm. who is um, obviously an activist uh, who uses indigenous, you know, wisdom with her mm-hmm. scientific know-how mm-hmm. um, to remind us that you can say, oh, fortunate me, I live in a beautiful world. But if I can't find a way to heal the world and make the world a little bit better, then I really am not doing my work. Um and so I really, and again, Greta Thunberg is again, I'm, I know I'm inspired by many awesome and brilliant minds, but Greta Thunberg's voice, I think, speaks to me the most here, that she doesn't want us to be hopeful. She wants us to panic, right? Uh-huh. So as an artist, while my work looks relaxing and, you know, I can talk with luxury about my walking and care providing, it also is with a sense of panic that I wake every morning and say, what more can I do? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You see it so clearly. You know what's at stake. Yeah, it's absolutely the truth. Um, so what's at stake right now, you know, is um, we are on a, an environmental crisis. The The world is on fire, <laughs> mm-hmm. again, as, as young Thunberg has said to us. And and I realize that while I live in a beautiful town with beautiful greenness all around me, I have lived most of my life in cities. I have walked hot city streets with my students. I have seen where they live. And I acknowledge the fact that both in cities and in rural places, our awareness of our care for the earth and for each other has got to get better. And so I will walk and I will use my little tiny cell phone and my little tiny body to take pictures and to crowd spaces with messages that hopefully other people can understand without language, spoken language text, mm-hmm. to make a change. And this is, are you talking about now your, uh, the Now More Than Ever project? <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm talking about everything, aren't I? <laughs> so... Yeah, now for now more than ever is really just what we all do. Everybody's doing it. If you have a cell phone and a smart or a smartphone and you're taking pictures with your phone, you know, on any given day, you're creating a digital stockpile of stuff someplace. And those moments that you choose to snap 
to archive. They're all contained in this little digital device that comes to us probably via somebody else's hard work, underpaid workers someplace far away, environmental damage because of the carbon footprint that that little device gets to me with. And yet, if I must have that device for survival in this world, then I'm going to use it for good. And so I'm going to take all those little moments, these human moments where as a human being, I pause, I see, I capture a picture of something because it means something to me. If I turn that device inside out and string up a few thousand of the chosen photographs that I've taken with compostable paper and ink and twine and let other people pause to take a look at how much our little cameras, our little ideas fill up the world, then yeah, my work hopefully will make a change. Small steps. Little. Literally and figuratively. Yeah. Mm. Your camera fits in your pocket. It's the most, or your phone. <laughs> it, it's yes. the most intimate device. It has your fingerprints on it. You, you know, your saliva probably from talking <laughs> into it. It's, it's kind of and gross. <laughs> and apparently skin cells, right. I, I understand from, because holding it up against your cheek all the time. Yeah. So this is a pretty mm -hmm. biological, it's biological now. Mm -hmm. And we are, and we're sharing our ideas in it. It knows everything about us. It knows our mm -hmm. habits. Mm -hmm. And then what does, what does it say about us when you take, when you stop and, and do the exercise of opening up your, your photos, your photo collection on your, on your device and say, what is it that I take pictures of? Do I like to take mm. pictures of a good meal? Do I like to take pictures of my friends all gathering in lots of selfies? Do I like mm. to take pictures of something in nature? Do I, or am I taking pictures of produce at the grocery store to mm. share with somebody who can't get to the store? What am I doing, mm. you know? Oh, that's really interesting to sort of look and see what the theme is. Yes. And uh, it's it's funny, I'm a, you know, like many people in the pandemic, I become a hardcore sourdough bread maker. There you are. And, and watching the, the mother yes. just alive and happy after she's fed with all <laughs> these living microbes. I feel like it, I, I snapped a picture this morning and I sent it to a friend. I said, this is one happy mama. And, you know, and yeah. that, that's like that. What's that about? What does that mean? It's not necessarily beautiful. It's, uh. it's no one personal, you know, it's not a meal, but... I, I, that, uh, that's very interesting about, you can tell a lot about who you are and what's important to you. Absolutely. And what you just said, one happy mama. So the image itself, right. It might not be a composed fancy photograph, mm -hmm. but it is, is you're cultivating a relationship between yourself and those microorganisms that are mm -hmm. creating, or they're creating air they're creating food mm -hmm. and you're cultivating a relationship with another person because that other person understands um that same sort of moment of oxygen being released from sugar and grain and whatever and and so you're cultivating so many things there which is rejuvenation which is um productive 
So it's not and about appreciation the for the process, which is magical. Exactly. Absolutely, because there is no commercial yeast. It is coming out of the air and it is coming out of the flower. Yeah. And it is alive and seemingly, if a microbe can be happy, <laughs> it's get, it is it's delirious. <laughs> exactly. So so I guess if you imagine pausing which is what is happening with me when I am walking, when I'm snapping a moment. I'm just pausing and saying, oh, I noticed that. And again, paying attention, pay attention. I used to sort of make that a lesson for my art education students. A, a, an exercise in paying attention is a form of being um, careful about our world of not just appreciation, because again, that's more luxurious, I think. Pay attention so that you can understand when the time is right, when your moment is there to fix, to solve, to heal, you know, pay attention. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, that sounds like the the prominent, prominent theme is paying attention. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah so so much and 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 so thought provoking laura where can people find out more about your work and um and your activism well, thank you for asking um so you know i have a website it's laurakreader.com mhm laurakreader.com is my website and on that website are sort of what I see as the sort of three if you will sort of uh, intersections of of what I see that I do in my work which is I am an artist I am a teacher but most of all I am a human and by going to that site you'll find that there are three pages essentially three sections that walk through some of the work that i've done and we didn't talk much about it in this uh, conversation but the idea of teaching and learning from each other learning from each other and teaching each other is really still quite central to all of this and so that's pretty evident on the website when you go to the mm. teacher to the teacher page and I want to clarify for our listeners, Reader is R-E-E-D-E-R, -E -E and it's a beautiful website, Thank and you. there's all kinds of things to look at and to appreciate. Mm -hmm. Laura, thank you so much for spending time with, with us today. It was really lovely. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed the opportunity to have this conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. If you like the podcast, please share it with some of your friends. If you think decluttering could help you feel better and you could use a little assistance with that, check out the online course I've developed with professional organizer and designer Carrie Luteran. It's called Too Much Stuff. 
And too much stuff is different from other courses or articles or guidance you may have used up. We give you clear steps to deal with the clutter and the tools to help you face the overwhelming feelings and the emotions that come up when we're going through our clutter. And a lot of those emotions are just feeling anxious or guilty or just basically flooded with a lot of different confusing feelings. The course is really practical. It's realistic. The lessons are short and punchy, and they're really manageable. We're not trying to set you up for some long, exploratory, you know, super in-depth, burdensome experience. We want something really helpful for you right now. We all need help with our anxiety. So, Being surrounded by more calm and less chaos can really help. So now's a good time to clear out the clutter so we can focus on what's really important in our lives. So find out more at zestfulaging.com. You'll see more about this under the web courses tab. If you have any questions, just shoot me an email at zestfulaging at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And stay tuned next week for another interview with a fascinating and inspiring guest.